You're listening to the Word of Hope, sermons preached at Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Today's sermon is preached by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. A reading of the Holy Passion of our Lord Jesus Christ from the Gospel of St. Luke, the first part. In the name of Jesus, Amen. We are gathered here to meditate on these seven words or seven sermons of our Lord Jesus on the cross. And it is really quite stunning that Jesus, while he was dying, was preaching. And he was preaching for us. We want to have an overview, and then we'll take a look at the words each in their turn. Uh, there's probably three groups of these words. We remember that our Lord Jesus was, uh, was nailed to the cross at about nine in the morning, and that it was six hours that he was suspended, lifted up on high so that he might be glorified in this way. Uh, and until six or till three o'clock in the afternoon, uh, when he breathed his last and died. We also remember that it was at noon, so three hours or halfway into his suffering on the cross, that the darkness covered the face of the earth. The sun hid its face. So from about noon until three, that time which we are gathered here, the sky would have been dark. Jesus would have hung there in darkness. It seems like the seven words of Jesus can be grouped together then into sort of three groups. The first three words at the beginning, when things are just getting started, so sometime in the first three hours. This is the Father, forgive them, and the woman, behold your son, and today you will be with me in paradise. And then there's three that come at the end. I thirst It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then one stands at the center, and it will be at the center of our service today, and it's it's at the center of what the Lord was doing. The cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's also, I think, helpful for us to note that of these three, of these seven sermons of Jesus, three of them were prayers, the first and the last and the middle. The first and the last are a prayer to God the Father. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the last, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then right into the middle, this prayer, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, we begin with the first word. Jesus is nailed to the cross. The execution is begun. The sentence that was declared by the kind of kangaroo court or kangaroo courts that had been through the night, the sentence is now being executed, and Jesus is being uh, hung as a criminal from the cross. His crime is put above him. This is the way that they would do it, right? They would put the crime above the head, and the crime is there listed, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. In other words, he was accused of trying to place, take the place of Caesar. And now they were showing what place he really had. That he was a usurper. That he was a liar and a deceiver. That he was a rebel. That he was dangerous. Jesus of Nazareth... King of the Jews. That's the way that Pilate and all of the people would say 
that Jesus is guilty, that Jesus has been judged, that Jesus stood before the court as the one who was accused, and he was found to be a criminal. And yet the first The first act of Jesus on the cross is not the act of a criminal, but rather the act of a defending, of a, what is the lawyer called who defends someone? Of a, of a defense lawyer. The first act of Jesus is not the act of a criminal, but the act of an advocate. He looks at the soldiers, and he knows that, that they will be tempted when they come to faith, in a few hours, at least one of them, to to destroy themselves in the conscience because they know the crime that they are committing, or at least they will. it will come uh, clear to them that they are crucifying the Son of God. And so Jesus cries out for mercy and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, have mercy on them. Do you see how Jesus turns the tables? I mean, he, 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 he is not content to simply be the guilty criminal. He knows that he is appointed as the judge of the entire world. And so now he cries out to the Father asking for mercy, asking for kindness, asking for forgiveness. And this, dear saints, is the business of the cross. It's what Jesus was doing. For these six hours, 1,986 years ago, it's what he was up to and what he was accomplishing. He was winning for you and for me a place in God's mercy, a place in God's smile, a place in God's house, a place that we had lost when we sinned in the garden and a place that we continue to run from as we continue in our own lives of sin, Jesus was winning a place for you and for me in the mercy and kindness of God the Father. Moses writes in Deuteronomy, Vengeance belongs to the Lord. And certainly, if there was a time for the Lord Jesus to execute vengeance, it would have been here. To call down from heaven the angels that served at His word to end this pain and to, and to right these wrongs and to overthrow this injustice, but He does not. Instead of crying for vengeance, He cries out for mercy. And he still does. For you and for me. Hebrews 7 says that he always lives to intercede for us so that Jesus is praying now even for you. It's wonderful to think of. And what is his prayer? It's the same. Father, forgive them. God be praised. Now one other quick note on this word. There are going to be times as we consider these seven words of Jesus when the words 
are not applicable to us. They are not for us to follow his example. For example, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know that we don't follow that example at all because, in fact, Jesus was being forsaken in our place. But there are times, as we consider the death of Jesus, that he's also teaching us how to die, and this is one of them. Three and a half years later, the deacon and pastor Stephen was being stoned in in Jerusalem, the first martyr, and he prayed for them the same words that Jesus prayed here. Father, forgive them. In 1536, Henry of, or 15, 26, Henry of Zupthan was being beaten and flayed and they were trying to burn him on a stick for confessing the gospel and he prayed this same prayer, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So that Jesus, with these words, is also teaching us how to live and how to die. That we don't go around trying to execute vengeance on our enemies but we also pray for mercy and for kindness and for forgiveness for them. So may God grant us a spirit that we would rejoice in the forgiveness of God our Father for us and that we would pray this also for our own enemies. Amen. Let us pray. Father, Forgive us. Cover us with the blood of Jesus. Look upon us not according to our sins, but according to your kindness. And grant that we would rejoice now and always in this great love of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. Passion according to St. Luke, the second part. When we compare the gospel accounts, we see that Jesus, uh, who was hung between these two malefactors, these two criminals, was being mocked at first from both sides, that both of them joined in the mockery of Jesus. Both of them joined in the crowds. Both of them were... Both of them were not that impressed that this one who claimed to be the Savior of the world and of all humanity was now here hanging on the cross, dying, bleeding, suffering along with them. It's an incredible thing to think. It wasn't enough for Jesus to be mocked by for Jesus to be mocked by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and and by all those people who were going by, to be mocked by the soldiers, both the Roman soldiers and the temple guard, to be mocked by the, the people who were just walking back and forth on the street, in and out of Jerusalem that day. I mean, this was what crucifixion was. It was a mockery. And in fact, in fact, that's probably the thing that Jesus despised the most. It says in Hebrews that he endured the cross despising the shame. To sit there and be mocked by all of these other people, but then to have the criminals, those who were getting what they deserved, to have them come along and mock Jesus. It just must be a bitter, 
pill to swallow, but Jesus was swallowing all the bitterness that heaven and earth could muster that day, and this is part of it. But something happened. At some point, early on, one of these criminals to the side of Jesus must have, must have noticed something. I mean, it is something for him to hear Jesus looking down at these soldiers who just nailed him to the cross and say, Father, forgive them. That's got to make an impression. And Jesus, who was led to the slaughter like a lamb without complaint, saying nothing, answering nothing, not not ridiculing back or even defending himself as all of this shame is heaped upon him, that was surely something. So that at some point, one of these men who was crucified to the side of Jesus stops his mocking. And he goes silent. And he starts paying attention. You know, there's something different about this one. I know criminals, and this man is no criminal. And as he's paying attention to Jesus, to how Jesus suffers, to what Jesus says, to the people who mock Jesus and how he responds, now the Holy Spirit comes along and gives to this man faith. So that he knows, and and look at all of the things that we know from what he says. Remember what he, 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 the, the, the one is still railing against him and he, and he stands up at Jesus' side and is, he's going to be Jesus' defender, the only defender that he'll have all day. He says, he says, do you not even fear God seeing that you are under the same condemnation and we rightly? For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. He knows that Jesus is innocent. He knows that Jesus, in fact, is holy. And more than that, he knows that Jesus is the holy God. He knows that Jesus is the Savior. Look, he turns from rebuking the guy on the other side of Jesus and he, and he addresses Jesus directly and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, dear friends, look, if there was any, uh, if there was ever anywhere a person who looked like he was not coming into his kingdom, it was Jesus. If you imagine a king, what a king would look like as he's coming into your kingdom, and then you flip that on its head, you have what's happening to Jesus. Jesus is not coming into his kingdom, he's coming into his death. He's coming into his passion. He's coming into his abandonment. I mean, maybe a week earlier, five days earlier, when Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, maybe that would look like coming into a kingdom, but even that was barely a start. But this, this man is breathing his last, and yet still he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Do you see that faith? That is to recognize the glory of Jesus in his suffering. He, this man crucified next to Jesus recognizes that the crown that's placed on his head, this crown of thorns, a crown of mockery, 
is in fact a true crown of a true king, and that the jewels that adorn that crown, the drops of his blood, are the most precious jewels ever to be seen on this world. He knows that Jesus being lifted up from the earth is his exaltation, and that this death is the salvation of the world, the winning of a kingdom. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, it's happening right now. This is me coming into my kingdom. This is the establishment of the kingdom of God. This, my death, is the birth of everlasting life. And you've got it, friend. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Can you imagine the comfort? This man already had confessed his sin. Remember, he said to the guy who was being crucified on the other side of Jesus, he said, look, we're hanging here rightly. You and I are getting this trouble because we deserve it. We're criminals. We got caught. We should be crucified like this. We should be rejected by humanity, by society, by our family and our friend, and even by God. We, he says, are getting what we deserve. Not Jesus. We're getting what we deserve. But now Jesus is going to give to him what he doesn't deserve. Eternal life. Salvation. The forgiveness of all of his sins. This is stunning. This man on the cross knows what you and I must also know, and that is this, that our eternal fate depends on the verdict of Jesus. How it goes with us when we die depends on what Jesus decides. If he would act according to our sins and condemn us, or if he would act according to his mercy and forgive us our sins. And here we see the verdict. The verdict for this man and the verdict for you. You will be with Jesus in paradise. I know that you don't deserve it, neither do I, but that's the point. The innocent lamb is slaughtered so the guilty can be set free. Now, I don't wonder, if you just would let me speculate for a couple of minutes, and again, this is not indicated anywhere in the Scripture, just my own thinking about this. But we know, we do know, that Jesus, even after the resurrection, has the scars from his crucifixion. He shows them to Thomas, remember? He says, look at my hands and my my feet and my side, don't be unbelieving, be believing. And even in the book of Revelation, when John sees the vision of Jesus on the throne, it's the lamb as he had been slain. Jesus kept for our glory and our comfort, he kept the scars that he had on the cross. Now, I just don't wonder if this man crucified next to Jesus would have asked the Lord for the same. Could I keep these scars too?
so that when we meet him one day in the resurrection, we'll be able to recognize this friend, our brother, the sinner crucified next to Jesus, who's rejoicing together with us in the Lord's mercy. God be praised for this promise. Today you will be with me in paradise. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, we ask that you would give us the comfort when our last hour draws near. To know that to close our eyes and sleep the sleep of death is to awake in your own presence. Grant to us on our last day this same comfort that we will be with you in paradise. Not because of our not because of our works, our earning or deserving, but because of your sacrifice, because of your death, and because of your blood. For we ask this all through you, our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with the Father and the Holy Ghost, one God, world without end. Amen. The Passion of Jesus from St. Luke. The third part. Simeon had given the promise to Mary when she brought Jesus as a baby into the temple. He said, a sword will pierce your own heart also. And now the sword is piercing her heart. It is a stunning, stunning thing that we are able to say on Good Friday that God has died. It's an amazing thing. It's, a, it's such a profound theological truth that we can spend our entire life, maybe even eternity itself, meditating on that truth and never come to a full understanding of it. That the eternal God who created the world has taken upon Himself creation so that He might be mortal, killable, dieable, stabbable, nailable, bleedable for you. That God Himself is that, and it cost the death of God to win your salvation. The blood of God was shed for you. But, we don't want to forget that this is not only, if we dare even speak this way, this is not only the death of God, this is also the death of a man. the death of a friend and the death of a son. So Jesus, who was keeping the law for you and for me and had the command to honor his father and his mother, now provides for Mary. She was there with her sister and Mary Magdalene. It seemed like the women didn't run away like the other apostles and disciples did so that they were there as Jesus was being crucified. But then John, who simply, it seems like, couldn't stay away, was watching from a distance and was slowly making his way closer and closer, maybe over the hill and now maybe on the wall looking down until finally he comes down into the shadow of the cross to those people who were all gathered around and were mourning. And Jesus now looks down and he sees there Mary, his mother, 
weeping. And John, his friend, weeping. And he says, Woman, behold your son. And son, and he says to John, Behold your mother. He gives his mother, Mary, into the keeping of his disciple. And as far as we can tell, that's what happened. In fact, if you go to Ephesus today, the ruins of Ephesus, you can visit a house that claims to be the house where John and Mary lived. Probably not, but that's the idea. And it is really quite wonderful that Jesus, and to think of it this way, that Jesus had stuff that he did because he was a boy, because he was a son of Mary, that he provided for her, that he took care of her, that he looked after her, and that that now will come to an end. There's a very, very real human mourning that's happening now at the cross of Jesus. That this one, this man, this Jesus, who Mary loved, who Mary Magdalene loved, who Mary the wife of Clopas loved, who, who John and, and Peter and Andrew, who the, this man that they loved, Martha and Mary and Lazarus, th- this friend of theirs, that he is now dying. I was listening to a, a lady yesterday. She was telling stories of her own life, all the sort of tragedies that have come one after another after another. And the guy said, well, what was the worst of all? And he said, oh, it's easy, this death of my friend. The death of my friend. That this death of Jesus is a tragedy. But Jesus, in the middle of it, is still blessing and serving his neighbor. The word I, you know, I, doesn't come up until the fifth word when Jesus says, I thirst. And it seems like here now that Jesus still has work to do, even sonly work to do, and friendly work to do before he breathes his last. Mary, look, here's John. John, here's Mary. Take care of each other. Bless each other. Don't let each other go. As we marvel, as we marvel at the fact that God is in our flesh dying for our sins, we don't want to forget the simple human truth that we need each other. That is, it would not be right for Mary to be abandoned, that it would not be right for John to not take care of Mary, or Mary not to take care of John. The Scriptures, and this is one of the mysteries that we see over and over, especially in the Gospels, that the Scriptures want to put right next to each other the truths of the, or the, or the works of the divine nature of Jesus and the works of the human nature of Jesus. So, for example, he survived in the wilderness 40 days without food or water. That's something only the God-man can do, and yet the Scripture tells us he was hungry. <laughs> Or that Jesus will be 
uh, 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 transfigured and glowing in light, and he'll be talking about his own death and suffering. This is the thing. And so here it is. That God in the flesh about to accomplish man's salvation is making sure that his mom won't be left homeless. Jesus cares for you, then, in every way. He will provide for you an eternal dwelling place in the mercy of God, but he will also give you a place to sleep tonight. He's setting before before you a banquet of salvation where you will feast with him in the kingdom of the blessed, but he also provides you daily bread today and tomorrow and all the days until you die. Because Jesus shows himself in this moment and with this word to not only be our Savior, but to also be our friend. Woman, behold your son. And John, behold your mother. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, deal kindly with us. Be our friend. And may we find an affection also for you, for your words and your kindness and your presence. And may we, by your Holy Spirit, long for that day when we will see you face to face. Amen. Eating of the Passion, the fourth part. There are three distinct ways to think of the suffering of Jesus. They all happened at once, but it's important, I think, for us to imagine them slightly separate or distinct. And They are these. The physical suffering of the cross, the shame of the cross, and then what we are talking about here with this fourth word, the forsakenness of the cross. Now, the reason why we want to think of it in these terms, at least one reason, is that we can know something, you and I can know something, of these first two kinds of suffering. The physical pain, we can know physical pain, and shame. We also can know shame. All of us have been, at one point or another, injured. Uh, You've been hurt. You've been in agony because your body was writhing from some sort of pain. And all of us, in one way or another, know the suffering of shame, of being mocked or being abused in some way. To get to the difference, by the way, I I have this illustration that I think I've, I've been thinking about for a couple of years. The difference between physical pain and shame is this. If I said, would you rather someone punch you in the face or strip you of your clothes in public? Now, all of us, I would just guess, all of us would say, punch me in the face. Even though it doesn't hurt to be stripped, it does expose you, and now there you are in your shame. Well, Jesus suffered all of it. Physically, we know the physical suffering of the cross. I mean, to just have a a nine-inch nail 
driven through your hands and through your feet to hang there, to have your bones come out of joint. To, you know, the agony of the cross was that you had to, if you had to lift yourself up from your feet so you could get a breath, otherwise the fluid was filling your lungs. And this is after being beaten and crowned with thorns and being mocked and or thrown on the ground and all this abuse. It would have hurt. But, but, it would have hurt the men being crucified on either side of Jesus as well. And at the, at the physical pain of the cross was the pain that won our satisfaction, that won our redemption, that was the price that Jesus had to pay. Then we could also pay that because you and I have the same capacity to suffer physical pain that Jesus had. The shame of the cross is slightly different, but pretty close to the same, because Jesus was suffering the shame even though he didn't deserve it. Even though he was perfect in every way. He was mocked. He was abused. He was, he was spit on. They put the robes on him, and they bowed down. They, they put the crown of thorns on the head and the robe on his back, and they put a staff in his hand, and they bowed down to him, these soldiers, and said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they took the staff out of his hand, and they beat him with it. They blindfolded him. We had that. We blindfolded him, and they struck him. And it's not enough just to strike. They say, prophesy, who hit you? This is the shame. I think the shame of the cross is probably what we hear about most in the Gospels. We don't hear in the Gospel lessons about the physical suffering of the cross, but rather the shame of the cross. That people were walking by, wagging their heads, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. He trusted in God. Where's God now? In fact, I don't wonder, in a human way of thinking, if that might have been the worst thing that Jesus had to endure. He trusted in God. Where is he now? That's what Jesus is going to pray. Remember the whole of Psalm 22? Or not the whole of it, but the next part that comes after what Jesus prayed. Our fathers, they trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They called out to you and you heard them. Me, I'm a worm and not a man. Despised. So Jesus is ashamed. He's embarrassed. They're gambling for his clothes. And yet, this also is not the salvation, the suffering that wins our salvation. I did a couple of, I don't know, a couple of days ago, a week ago or so, I did some YouTube video talking about how Jesus suffered for us, and I had some guy come on there and and he said, he said, Jesus didn't really suffer. He didn't give his life. Where is he now? Isn't he still alive, don't you say? He said, Jesus, this is what he said, Jesus might have had a bad weekend, but lots of people have suffered worse. And in a way, he's right. Other people have suffered worse physical afflictions than Jesus suffered. Other people have suffered worse shame than Jesus suffered. At least we can imagine that they have. But there is a suffering, a hidden suffering, that's happening on the cross that is the most profound of all, and it is this word of Jesus that gives us access to this great mystery. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the true suffering of the cross. 
It's the suffering of God's wrath over sin. It's the suffering of God's anger that you and I deserve. He, Paul says, that He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, and so our sin piled on Jesus, makes Him abhorrent to God and the object of God's wrath. The wrath that I deserve. The hell that I deserve. The anger that I deserve and that you deserve. Jesus is getting it all. It's like He takes... If you can imagine it like this, that that every time you sin, you're wearing some white shirt. And every time you sin, there's a stain on your shirt and a mark on your shirt and a, some sort of filth and stink and tear. And this is your shirt. And, it, and that's all right. I mean, it's okay to have a dirty shirt unless you're headed for a clean shirt competition. And Jesus finds you in line just as you're about to go out there and stand to be judged. And He takes that shirt and he puts it on himself so that now all of your sin, all of your failures, all of your faults are are piled on him. This is what the preaching of the Day of Atonement was. When the priest would put his hands on the lamb and speak the people's sins, and now all of the people's sins were, were not on the people, they were on the lamb. Well, this is how it is with Jesus. All of our sins are on him, all of them. And God now looks down at Jesus and doesn't see the son that he loves, but rather sees all that he hates and abhors. And he forsakes him. In fact, he pours out his wrath on him. That's how it says it in Isaiah. He was stricken by God. And afflicted, so that this forsakenness of God is both passive and active. The the righteous anger of God for, for sinners falls down on Christ. I want to think about these words in some ways one at a time and look at them more closely. First, Jesus says, Eloi, Eloi, that is, my God, my God. Remember, there were three prayers that Jesus is going to pray from the cross. The first word, the last word, Father, forgive them, Father, into your hands. But now his prayer is not to his Father, it's to God. And and I think it's because it's not the wrath of the Father that Jesus is suffering, but the wrath of God, all of God, his own wrath he's suffering here. My God, my God, you have forsaken me. The eternal bonds of love are now broken because all of our sins piled on Jesus, and He now is abhorrent. He's masked in our abominations. He's covered in our wretchedness. He's sunk into the filth of our own sin so that God in His holiness cannot stand to look at Him. And then this, Jesus prays, why? Why? 
Jesus does not pray, my God, my God, you have forsaken me, but my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I, dear saints, think this is a real question. That for these moments of darkness, from noon until three, as Jesus hung alone, suspended from the earth, that even the purpose of his suffering has been hidden from him. Now, he knew right when he was nailed to the cross what he was doing there. He said, forgive them. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And he knows now in just a few minutes that he's accomplished it. It's finished. But for this moment, for this for this agony in the middle, that that this knowledge of what he is even doing there and why he is suffering the wrath of God is hidden from him so that he has nothing, nothing to cling to, no comfort at all. He doesn't have the comfort that he of the knowledge that he'll be raised on the third day. He doesn't have the comfort that his death is for you and for your salvation. He he, He has removed from himself any scrap of any knowledge that would give him any comfort at all. And so all he knows is that he did nothing wrong and he is suffering God's wrath because of seemingly no reason. He doesn't, he doesn't even have the comfort of knowing that, that he is doing this for a purpose. So that his suffering here, this wrath, This agony, this anger of God, this forsakenness, his suffering here is beyond our comprehension. We simply can't see it. We can see the nails. We can see the spear. We can see the whip. We can see the the hair of his beard being torn out of his face. We can see that. We can see the spit. We can see the mockery all around. We can see the blood pouring out. We can see these things. We can see the bones out of joint. We can see the crown of thorns. We can see the anger of of men. We can even see the anger of the demons. But what you don't see in the suffering of Jesus is the is the thing that matters most. The vengeance of God towards sinners. And this is the point. Because of the death of Christ, you will never see it. You will never taste this anger. You will never know this suffering that you deserve. You will never... You will never be able to say these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because He will not forsake you. He will not leave you. He will not let you alone in your sin. He will not let your guilt remain on you. He will take it. He has taken it. He will suffer it for you. So that the true suffering of the cross is a suffering that we can't even imagine. And because of Jesus, we won't have to. There's a lot of ways that Jesus in his death is showing us how to die. But this is not one of them. This is Jesus being your substitute. This is Jesus 
pushing you out of the way of God's wrath so that it hits him and not you. This is Jesus in your place. And this is the suffering that wins salvation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's hard for us even to comprehend the fact that Jesus didn't know why he was suffering. But God be praised. We know the answer to that question. He was suffering so that we could live for eternity in his joy and peace. Amen. O Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you handed yourself over to our sin so that you might win for us righteousness and salvation. We thank you that you suffered the wrath of God so that we might know your mercy. And we pray that in the agony of this question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We might find the absolute comfort and assurance that you will never leave or forsake us. For we ask this through you, who live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. A reading of the Passion, the fifth part. I thirst. This is the first time we hear the word I from the mouth of Jesus. And in some ways, it's, it, it marks something for us. We were talking with the, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? How Jesus was, was sunk into this deep and profound suffering of the wrath of God over human sin. And I just imagine that while you are suffering the profound depths of God's wrath, while you are in this writhing agony, that you are not at the same time thirsty. And in a way, in a way, the fact that Jesus here says, I thirst, indicates that this deep and profound suffering now is over. That the, that the end has come. And that we're now ready for the very last part, for Jesus to preach the victory of the thing that he has now accomplished. So he, so he comes up out of this profound depth of suffering and now finds himself not only suffering, after no longer suffering the wrath of God, now suffering the wrath of nails and the wrath of crucifixion and says, Oh, I'm thirsty. In some ways, this I thirst is the beginning of his victory, the beginning of his triumph, the end of God's wrath, and now just the wrath of man. Now it's just to preach and to die. And yet, at the same time, this I thirst reminds us that Jesus is not Superman that he hurts, that he is, in fact, in pain. If we didn't have this word, we wouldn't know it. I mean, from the other words that he speaks, we would just 
know that crucifixion is a harmful thing, but maybe we might be able to think that Jesus didn't feel the harm. That it somehow bounced off of him because of the union of the divine nature with the human nature in this single person of Christ. But that is not the case. Jesus can hurt. And he does. He's thirsty. They offered Jesus, at the beginning of the crucifixion, they offered Jesus wine mixed with gall. It was sort of a, oh, what is it, a medicine that makes you numb, like, like an anesthesia, but it was, you know, like a, like a Tylenol. It would just numb the pain, and Jesus refused to drink that. He was not there to have no pain. He was there to experience pain in the fullness. Pain to the max. Pain so that we wouldn't have to. So he refused the first drink. But now, six hours later, he asks for something to drink. So they take a sponge and they dip it in sour wine and they put the sponge on the end of a hyssop stick and they reach it up to the mouth of Jesus and swab his lips and his precious lips take a drink and the scripture is fulfilled. They gave him wine to drink. It seems like this might be the last of all of the scriptures that Jesus needed to fulfill in his life. And John tells us that he asked for a drink explicitly to fulfill the scripture. To make sure that all that the prophets had spoken was fulfilled in him. That not one jot or tittle, not one dotting of the I or crossing of the T was left that Jesus would complete it all. And then there's a fourth thing. So number one, let me see if we got the list right. Number one, the thirst indicates that he's out of the deep suffering. Number two, the thirst proves that there was, in fact, a physical suffering that Jesus endured on the cross. Number three, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. And number four, so that he could preach what comes next the sixth and the seventh word. Because Jesus doesn't want you to miss these things. He doesn't want you to miss what he's about to say. That it's finished. That it's over. That it's accomplished. And the victory's won. But that's what comes next. Let us pray. O oh Lord, we thank you that you thirsted. We thank you that you so joined yourself to our humanity that you could feel the pain that we feel, that you could know the suffering and temptation that we know, and that you could sympathize with us. We thank you that your atoning sacrifice came to an end and that you preached victory for us. 
We pray that you would satisfy us with the longing and joy of the salvation that you have accomplished. For we ask this through your name, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The Passion, the sixth part. Tetelestai, that's what it is in the Greek. Tetelestai, it's finished, it's over. Now what's over? We, we, we want to think that maybe the sixth hour of, of suffering, that that's what Jesus is talking about. Now it's over. So I'm done now. I'm finished with all the suffering and with all the dying. But if, the, if we were to understand it that way, we would just barely be scratching the surface because the thing that is ending here on the cross, when Jesus says it's finished, goes all the way back to the very, very beginning. When God declared war, remember this? Here's Adam and Eve and the devil hiding in their fig leaves and the bushes in the garden, and the Lord says, it's not going to be this way. I'm going to start a war. I'm going to put enmity between you, devil, and the woman, between your seed and her seed. I'm going to wage war against you. And the, and the victory, the spoils of that war, is the salvation of humanity. And so the Lord takes up his battle with the devil there in the garden, and we track it all the way through, through Noah and the Tower of Babel and the and the twelve tribes with the family of Abraham and all the kingdoms and, the, and David and the Assyrians and the Babylonians assaulting it all the way through until this very moment. And this war for you, this war to win you, to destroy the devil, is now over. That is finished. It's accomplished. He's done it. Can you imagine how the devil, who is triumphing in all these things, who thinks that he has won the day, Jesus, after all, said, now is the hour of darkness, and it was the devil who was in Judas to, to have Jesus arrested, cried and tried and crucified. It is the devil's moment, we think. Can you imagine how the devil would have stopped and said, wait a minute, when he heard Jesus with his newly whetted lips cry out in victory, it's finished, it's over. What? I thought that was what I was going to say. I was about to have my moment of triumph, says the devil. I was about to start dancing. I was about, I thought I was winning the victory and now you're claiming, what do you mean it's finished? It's because Jesus has won the war. He's conquered the devil by his death. And this is really what's going on there because the finish that Jesus is accomplishing is paying the debt for your sin. Apparently, you know when they go looking for old manuscripts in the ancient world, apparently they find mostly like old receipts. <laughs> like just scraps of clay and paper where people were making receipts. And it's kind of, you can't learn a lot of theology from looking at the receipts. But one thing is that shows up on all of these old ancient Greek receipts is this word, tetelestai. It's finished. When you would write, we have the stamp, you know, paid in full. When the debt has been paid, that's what is spoken. And that's what Jesus is claiming. The debt is paid. The debt that you owe, the debt that I owe, it's, it's done. It's taken care of. Imagine being, being, uh, 
taken to court and found guilty, and because of the crime that you committed, you owe a fine to the court. But you can't pay it. So now you have to be locked up or whatever. I don't know actually what happens in that sort of situation. But you, you can't pay the debt, so you still are there. You're trapped. You can't be set free unless someone comes in to the court and pays the fine for you, and then you can be set free. Now that's the biblical word, redemption. Sometimes we speak of ransom, that someone else would pay the price for you. And this is what Jesus has done. He has paid the price. It wasn't wasn't the price of gold or silver or some sort of monetary amount. Jesus has redeemed you. A lost and condemned person purchased and won you from all sins, from death and from the power of the devil, not with gold and silver, but with His holy, precious blood and his innocent suffering and death. That is what it costs. That is your redemption price. And it's been paid. To Telestai. It's finished. We, we need to hear this over and over and over. Because we, at least, let me just speak for myself, but I think this is true for all of you as well. All of us are constantly driven by a haunting thought that it's not over. We're driven by the idea that we are not good enough to God. In fact, I think everybody is driven by this. There's a balance sheet that's kept in your own conscience. And whenever you sin, it's like you're in debt and you've got to make up for it. Or somehow you've got to do more and more and more to please God or to to make Him happy with you. We're driven by this haunting sense of our own guilt, which is a debt to divine to God's divine holiness. And it's true that we are not holy. It's true that we are guilty. But it is truer that it is finished. It's finished. You you cannot be more perfect than you are right now in God's sight. There is nothing more that you can do to make God happy with you because... It's finished. And there's nothing you can do to deserve to, or, to, or to invite upon your own head the anger of God because it's finished. The Lord Jesus is utterly, utterly pleased with you. God the Father is utterly pleased with you. The Holy Spirit is absolutely pleased with you because it's finished. There's nothing more to be done. Christ has accomplished your salvation. Christ has atoned for your sins. Christ has redeemed you from sin and death and the power of the devil. He has done it. And dear friends, it's finished. It's finished. And what's left for us is to rejoice in this 
finished work. To know that it is for us. And to delight in this. The triumph of Jesus. It is finished. Amen. O Lord, we give you thanks for finishing the war with the devil that you began in the garden. We give you thanks that you have paid the price for our redemption. We give you thanks that you have finished the work of our salvation. We thank you for your triumph and victory which you won through the cross. And we pray that you would give us the joy and delight of this victory. For we ask this through you who live and reign with the Father and the Holy Ghost, one God, world without end. Amen. The Passion, the seventh part. We come now to the last words of Jesus. Like the first, Jesus begins and ends with a prayer to the Father. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And now, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus ends his earthly life by praying Psalm 31, verse 5a. Now that A is important. You know, when you divide up verses and you just have part of a verse, you indicate it with A or B or ABC or whatever it is, and Jesus prays only the first part of Psalm 31, verse 5, and we'll talk about why in a minute. But I want to first think about what actually happens when Jesus dies. We know that death is the unnatural rending of the body and the soul. You were never, you were supposed to be always together, body and soul. These two things were never supposed to be apart from one another. But when sin entered the world, so did this fundamental corruptibility of our human nature that our bodies and our souls can be torn apart. And that's what death is. The tearing apart of body and soul. And that's what happens with Jesus. His human body and his human soul are torn apart. They're separated from one another. His body, well, we know what happens to his body. It's there on the cross, hanging limp and lifeless. So that Joseph of Arimathea sees it, and he goes and he asks Pilate, can we put... Can we take down the body? Can I take possession of the body of Jesus? And Pilate, remember, is astonished that he's dead so quickly. Yes, sure. And so Joseph of Arimathea takes the body of Jesus off of the cross. He would have needed help. And lays it in his own tomb. I think I've told you all this before, but we went uh, ten, nine years ago. We went to Germany and saw the Passion Play and Oberammergau. It's this long, it's a whole deal. It's all afternoon and evening, and they go through all of the stuff. And, and two of the most dramatic scenes in the Passion that still I can still see them very vividly is number one is the crowning of Jesus with thorns. The soldiers had these big, thick gloves, and they took this these 
thorny branch and they twisted it around like this and they put it on the head of Jesus and then they took, there was four soldiers and they took two reeds, like two bamboo sticks and they laid them crosswise atop the head of Jesus and there was a soldier here and a soldier there and a soldier there and a soldier behind and on the count of three, all of the soldiers bent down the reed like this so that it pressed the crown of thorns into the head of Jesus and you saw there, the first drop of blood being shed by our Lord. That was, I'll remember. But the second scene, which is even slightly more profound, was the removal of the body of Jesus from the cross. There he was hanging by his hands like this, you know. And they took a a, a sash or some sort of cloth. I mean, maybe like the thing there, the black thing on the, there's some sort of, and they put it up over the cross and then down and then behind the arm of Jesus and then across his chest and then behind his arm again and up behind the upright and they were holding on so that as Jesus, as the man with a crowbar on the, on the cross and the ladder pried the nail out of Jesus' hand and he flopped over, they could hold him up. And then his other hand came down and then they lowered his body off of the cross like this. Into the hands of the people down there waiting. Just limp. And it, and I, I don't know why it struck me, but that Jesus was in fact truly dead. That his body was now getting cold as he was carried, wrapped quickly, and carried to the tomb. That's what happened to his body. And the soul of Jesus, what happened to his soul? Well, we know that from what he spoke earlier. Today, he said to the malefactor, remember, you will be with me in paradise. So that the soul of Jesus goes immediately to the Father and to the beatific vision, to that thing that we look for when we also go to die. So that at the moment of the death of Jesus, His body and soul are separated from one another, and His body then is laid in the tomb, and His soul goes to be with God, His Father. Now, we have to ask this question, which is just good for us to think about. Well, what about the divine nature of Jesus? Does that stick with the soul and go to heaven and leave his body? Well, in fact, no. Both the body and soul of Jesus mysteriously remain united to his divine nature so that it's fulfilled in the burial of Jesus. Psalm 16, which says, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. That the body of Jesus, even though it grows cold, it does not begin to decay. United with the divine nature as it is, and he fulfills that promise. In fact, Peter preaches about that in his first Pentecost sermon. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. And yet still his body is laid in the tomb. Jesus dies like you and I, will one day die. 
if he doesn't come back for us first. And in this, he is our example. Remember, we had Jesus as our example before when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he gives us the example to follow when we are being persecuted when we are being put to death, when we are being martyred. Well, now Jesus gives us examples, the example of how to die even when we're not being martyred. This is for all of us. That when it's time for us to die, we pray Psalm 31, verse 5. Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. In fact, to get ready for the moment when it's time for you and for me to die... We, in, we pray that prayer every day. Luther puts it on our lips every morning and every evening. For example, remember the evening prayer. I thank you, my Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this day, and I pray that you would forgive me for all of my sins where I have done wrong, and graciously keep me this night, for into thy hands I commend myself, my body and soul, and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe might have no power over me. So every, in fact, it's an amazing sort of thing. Every night when we go to bed and we pray that prayer, we're just practicing going to the grave. I want you to think about this. I mean, don't think about it if it keeps you up. But to think about this, that every time you go and lie down and say the evening prayer at night, you're just practicing for when you finally have to die. Just getting ready. So that we'll go to our grave, we'll go to our death, we'll go to our sleep, just like we go to bed at night. Full of comfort. And full of peace. Because of what Jesus did. In His death. Remember I told you that Jesus only prayed the first part of this verse, right? He prayed Psalm 31, verse 5a, because he couldn't pray the second part of the verse. I want to read it to you. Into thine hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. You see, Jesus couldn't pray that verse because He wasn't being redeemed. He was redeeming. He wasn't being redeemed by God because He was God redeeming us. He was the one... He, he was there on the cross paying this price, winning our salvation, forgiving our sins, satisfying the wrath of God, overcoming sin and the death and death and the grave for us, ending the reign of terror of death and the devil and all of this sort of stuff. He was doing this all for us so that we could pray Psalm 31.5b. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. He has redeemed you. All your sin is forgiven. All your debt is paid. All of your guilt has been suffered. All of the wrath that you deserve is spent. Your death is overthrown. The devil is bound. 
so that there is nothing to be afraid of. (laughs) When you go to bed at night, or when you breathe your last, there's nothing to worry about. So Jesus here teaches us how to die. Into your hands I commit my spirit, for you have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. Amen. May God grant to us his Holy Spirit that we would believe these promises of our Lord Jesus and believing have life in his name. Amen. Let us stand to pray. O Lord, into your hands we commit our spirit. You have redeemed us, O Lord God of truth. You have rescued us by your suffering and death from all fears, from all worries, and from all sorrow. We pray that you would be with us now and in the hour of our own death, that we would be unafraid, but know that to fall asleep in your name is to awaken to see your face. We pray that you would keep us in this confidence, even as you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Ghost, one God, world without end. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Word of Hope. We hope your time with us was one of joy and peace in hearing the Lord's Word and kindness. If you have questions about anything you heard on today's broadcast, please don't hesitate to contact us at office at hope-aurora.org or call the office at 303-364-7416. For more information about our congregation, for locations, service time, and schedule, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.org. Thank you for listening to the Word of Hope.